One out of every four Americans has a diagnosable mental illness, and yet we still treat people as if this is something shameful. You don't want to feel like you're damaged in that way because it goes to the core of who you are as a person. We'll spend the next hour exploring the relationship between mental health and courage. In a culture that stigmatizes mental illness, it takes courage to recognize when we have a problem, to be open with our struggles, and to ask for help. It takes courage to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is the core of shame, and vulnerability is the core of fear, and maybe even anxiety. But it's also the birthplace of hope, of compassion, of love, of belonging, of joy. That's all coming up from Safe Space Radio. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio. This hour, we'll be talking about mental health and courage. Courage is about doing what you need to do, even though you're afraid. But when you're struggling with fear, most of the time, you don't think of yourself as having courage, because all you feel is the fear. When I was a little girl, I had a recurring nightmare that there was a kidnapper hiding in my house. I would wake up from the nightmare convinced that he was nearby, just waiting to grab me. I'd go out into the hall and call for my mother. I tried to be loud enough for her to hear me, but quiet enough so the kidnapper wouldn't. I was utterly terrified, standing there alone in the pitch dark, hugging the banister and calling for her. When my mother came, she was tired, a little worn out by my fears. I learned to feel ashamed of them. What if she had said, Anne, You are so brave to come out here all by yourself in the dark, and you are so brave to ask for help when you need it. I see your courage. And how would it be if we could all do that for each other? See the courage in the struggle and acknowledge it out loud. It takes courage for all of us to maintain our mental health in difficult times. If you have ever struggled with feeling depressed or anxious, or deeply afraid, you know how much courage it takes to cope. And yet, do we ever think of mental illnesses in terms of courage? People who have a mental illness have to find exceptional courage to keep going when they feel hopeless, to face their fear when they suffer disabling anxiety. They've had to develop courage like a muscle that gets stronger with practice. What we may mistakenly judge as weakness or failure is actually a kind of courage boot camp. Neil McKenty was a radio talk show host in Canada for many years. He struggled with depression and alcoholism. In 1997, at a time when it was far less common to talk publicly about mental illness, Neil was a pioneer. This interview was recorded four years before his death at age 87. Depression indicates that the front that you've spent so long constructing is beginning to crack and disintegrate. You really can't afford to let people see this going on. So the only thing you can do is withdraw pull down the blinds and pull the covers over your head, you know, stay away from people. You can't afford to let people see you the way you really are. What I was aware of from the beginning, I mean, it started very early, I was different. And I was different in the sense that I was less than, Mm -hmm. that other people were more popular, other people were more successful, And I was the odd ball out. Now, when you look back on it, do you feel like that wasn't true, that that was just a belief you had about yourself? I think that I was not that different. I think there were all kinds of lonely people walking around. So, Neil, I want to ask you more about what it's like to be depressed. When you're depressed, tell me about that experience. 
Well, I think one of the words that may describe it best is paralysis. You're in a black hole and you're immobile, and it's a very frightening space. You do not want to get out of bed in the morning. You have nothing to get out of the bed in the morning for. You have no real interest in people, including your wife, and I had been happily married and was deeply in love with Catherine. I thought that my life had been useless and that there was absolutely nothing to look forward to. And one day, Catherine was away doing some work somewhere, I actually left a note for her that she would be better off without me. And so I walked to the metro station. It was a cold, blustery, snowy March day. The walk, I think, helped me immeasurably. The very physical activity in the cold air was, in some paradoxical sense, bracing. And I went down to the metro station. I sat there and stood there for a while, but I did not jump, and I went home. I can't emphasize too much that any kind of physical exercise will give you a leg up. I was still doing radio part-time, and during the period of my worst depression, I had to go to the station every afternoon, and I hated going, but I was committed to it, so I went. That was one of my salvations that I got out from under the covers. Catherine encouraged me to walk if I could, and did that every day was of immense benefit. Coping with depression requires a kind of daily courage. The strength and resolve it takes just to decide that life is worth living can be exhausting. When things got very bleak, Neil was hospitalized. He also underwent shock treatments. The medical interventions were very helpful. I mean, I'm not sure I would have survived without them. But the person that made the difference in the end was not a medical person. I got in touch with a friend of mine. I said, I don't know what to do. I need help. I'm in a lot of trouble. Even to tell him was a complete step forward because I accepted my vulnerability. And he said, I know the guy that I think can help you. And we got into his car, and we drove a few blocks to this guy's apartment. His name was Jim. And he said, all right, here's what you're going to do. And he outlined a program just like that. I was to come to his place every night at 7 o'clock and to walk there, not ride. I was to write out a program the night before of all my activities the next day. I was to do a certain amount of reading particularly about addiction. I was to listen to tapes with him. Well, we did this for about two or three months. It was six nights a week. He said, I'd take one night off. Did you pay him for this? No, he wouldn't take a nickel. Wow, so I, he I, gave of himself Yes, he. Oh, yes, he did. You. Oh, yes, he did. He's a wonderful man with great perspicacity. He knows people. He knows addictive personalities, and he's wonderfully supportive. And I started to feel that I was more real. And boy, what a liberating experience that was. Neil eventually went public with his struggles. He felt strongly that talking and writing truthfully about depression and substance abuse was an important step in his recovery. And the fact is, of course, nobody came up to me and said, gee, what a fraud you are. I never thought you would like that. You had a drinking problem. They came up to me and said, my God, thank you. What were they thanking you for? They were thanking me for articulating, I think, many of their own fears. Perhaps each mental illness fosters specific kinds of courage. When Neil said that he felt his life had been useless, that is a hallmark of depression, a deep kind of self-hatred and sense of worthlessness that makes living feel unbearable. The courage to keep going... To get up and face each day when you feel that low is almost superhuman. When someone like Neil is willing to be open about his struggles, it can make others feel less alone with theirs. 
one person daring to be real encourages others to do the same. I believe that one courageous person can create a ripple effect, moving our culture as a whole toward more authenticity and empathy. In this light, acts of courage are generous. They make it safer for all of us to be more real. The definition of courage is doing what is right in the face of fear. To be courageous, we have to have an intimate relationship with fear. We can't deny it or disown it. We have to act in the face of it. For someone living with daily anxiety, it takes courage not only to cope with the feelings, but also to choose to do the thing that brings up the anxiety instead of avoiding it. Temple Grandin is the author of the book Thinking in Pictures, My Life with Autism. She's an animal scientist famous for her work redesigning slaughterhouses to be more humane and less anxiety-producing for the animals before their death. Temple had insight into how to help animals that are anxious, partly because she has struggled with anxiety all of her life. Her anxiety is triggered by acute sensory sensitivity, which is common for people with autism. Sensory problems can vary from being just a nuisance to being very, very, very debilitating. When I was a young child, I was terrified of sudden loud noises. It caused an extreme startle response. There's been some scientific research now that shows these sounds that bother the kid set off the fear center in the brain, part of the brain called the amygdala. I can remember going on a ferry boat that had a big foghorn, and I'd be sitting up on the deck, and that foghorn would blow, and I would just fling myself on the floor screaming and kicking. It hurt my ears. It was like a dentist drill hitting a nerve. Part of what really struck me in reading Thinking in Pictures was you describing that cows are prey animals and that part of why you sensed that you could understand them so well is that you felt like in some ways the nervous system of someone with autism can be almost wired as if like a prey animal, kind of always scanning for danger and for threat. That's a prey animal. You see cattle and other horses, other prey animals, their visual system is set up so that while they're grazing, they can constantly scan their environment for danger. I talked to a lady the other day that was out riding, and she made the mistake of putting ice cubes in her water bottle. And while she was riding, she took a drink out of her water bottle, and the ice cubes rattled, and her horse freaked out and took off because that was a totally novel, sudden sound he'd never heard before. I can relate to that. There is a high percentage of people with autism where anxiety and panic attacks is a major problem. Temple is a frequent public speaker at conferences where she gives talks about anxiety in people with autism. This is what I tell people at the conferences. I'll say, well, let's just imagine we shut the door of this conference room and I dump into this room about 50 deadly poisonous snakes. Just imagine how vigilant your nervous system is going to be if I did that. We need to try to work as much as we can on desensitizing some of the problems. But I want to emphasize, you've got to let the child initiate it. For example, another really bad sound is when microphones feed back and they screech. You know, you take the handheld mic, walk too close to the speaker, and then it feeds back. So one of the ways you might help a kid to desensitize that would be to give them the mic and say, okay, you walk up to the speaker, and just when it goes, you can back off. In other words, they are controlling, you know, how much of that sound they're going to have to listen to. Because what you don't want to do, is have a kid that just wears earphones all the time, and he just gets more and more and more sound sensitive. If you're using earplugs or a headset, you need to have it off for at least half the day when you're in a quiet environment. We need to be working on encouraging the kids to tolerate some noise. There is some ability to adapt to some of these things. When I was really little, if we went to a big noisy shopping place or something like that, I'd get upset. Well, I've gotten now where I tolerate that just fine. The other thing I want to emphasize, no sudden surprises. You've got to stretch these kids, and you have to stretch just outside the comfort zone. And my mother had a really, really good sense on just how much to stretch me. And one of the things I was not allowed to do as a child was become a recluse in my room. Do you think that that want to become a recluse, do you think that that's driven by anxiety? I think anxiety is one of the drivers of that, definitely. I found if I just got in my room and I laid on the bed and I just read a book, 
that tended to calm down my anxiety. So I just wanted to sit there and read a book. I had to come to meals. I had to do activities with the family. I could not be staying in the room all day. With anxiety, perhaps more than any other mental illness, courage is like a muscle that gets a workout every day as people struggle to tolerate fear. Or, as Temple puts it, to stretch past their comfort zone in order to be able to have a full life. Coming up, we'll hear about the power of stigma and shame and how even psychosis can be an invitation to courage after the break. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio. This hour, we're talking about courage and mental health. I've been doing some informal research into the forces that help people access their courage, and I've collected stories from hundreds of people about moments when they could find their courage. I've found that so often it comes down to two things, love and clarity. For many people, it's hard to summon up courage on our own behalf. It's the love for someone else and the fierce determination to protect them that fosters courage. Or feeling loved by someone can help you believe in yourself. And clarity is about knowing what's at stake, what your values are, and what you need to do. Even when there's tremendous risk, clarity helps us take action. Five years ago, Laura Catavinas was a college student working part-time with kids with autism. Laura struggled with depression and was put on medication. Well, I started taking it at the 20 milligrams. I didn't wean myself up, and I didn't tell anyone, because I didn't really know how powerful these drugs could be. I had no education. All of a sudden, I'm feeling great. Like, I'm feeling good. These antidepressants are amazing. Like, I, this is the happiest I've ever been. Well, that's mania. It just keeps going up and up and up until you reach good old psychosis, which is scary, very scary. I decided that I was going to free myself from society and make sure they know that I was not gonna let them kill me. I started taking microwaves and throwing it outside, computers throwing it outside. Mind you, I'm butt naked. And then I decided to set a fire in the middle of my kitchen on the rug. I took social security cards, birth certificates, and I burned them. My mom comes inside. She's putting out the fire. My dad comes upstairs and uh, he was crying. Police come upstairs and they kept saying, what are you doing, what are you doing? And I kept saying, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth. And they're like, well, you're coming with us. So they handcuffed me, literally dragged me down the stairs. They put me in the white padded room. It took probably four or five people to hold me down. They pulled down my pants and they tranquilized me. And I said, I'm not going down like this because I thought that that was the government killing me. So I ended up fighting that tranquilizer. I was doing push-ups on the floor. I was jogging in place. I was trying to fight whatever chemical they put in my body. I was taking the beds and throwing it on the other side of the room. I was banging on the doors. I'm screaming. I felt like I was fighting for my life at that moment. So I ended up dropping out of school after I got out of the psych ward and getting pregnant. I ended up leaving my daughter's father. I was on welfare, I was on food stamps. Felt like the bottom of the barrel. After a year on government assistance, Laura was legally required to get a job or go back to school. But there was a third option, which Laura discovered by carefully reading her assistance paperwork. And then I saw in small print, open a business. I was like, I'm doing it. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it. Laura's case manager tried to talk her out of it, but Laura had the courage to believe in herself. 
Before, when she was working with kids with autism, she'd gotten the idea that one day she would like to create a behavioral health agency. That vision turned into Black Bear Support Services. So we work with children with developmental disabilities, and we work on things that they need to be more functioning in society and to live happier lives in their families and in the community. For instance, we might teach how to tie shoes, brush teeth, clean rooms, self-soothe, speak about emotions. In her very first year as a business owner, Laura did well. Now, four years later, her business is booming. How did you find the confidence to take such a big leap? My daughter. Everything I've ever done is because of her. I'm committed to making sure that she's happy and healthy. But Laura was still trying to understand her own mental health. She'd been told she had bipolar disorder after her stay in the hospital. But the diagnosis didn't feel like it explained everything she was struggling with. All my life, I've always had a lot of trouble with dating. You would have found me kicking people out of my house within five minutes, throwing their stuff on the lawn, just things that were totally out of my character because I'm a pretty cool person. But when I date, I am not a cool person. I am very (laughs) difficult. (laughs) I am very difficult. Laura's doctor suggested that she do some research into borderline personality disorder. She found a description online, but she wasn't sure it fit. So then I decided to be completely vulnerable, and I sent it to people that I loved and that support me. And I said, I want to know what you guys think. And they were blown away. It was like an aha moment for everyone. They were like, this is you. Borderline personality disorder might be the most stigmatized diagnosis in all of psychiatry. It's usually the result of significant suffering in childhood and is characterized by highly dramatic emotions, the tendency to push people away and be very dependent at the same time, and the risk for both suicidality and psychosis. It's the kind of diagnosis that people hide, and even doctors are hesitant to bring up. But the stigma about borderline personality disorder didn't keep Laura from crowdsourcing her diagnosis. And Laura was relieved to finally have a diagnosis and treatment that felt right. It was a great moment, but it was also a very sad moment because I felt bad for that little girl inside of me that was sad growing up, that didn't feel connected with the world, that just felt like an outsider. And I had to relive all those emotions. Pain runs through families until someone's ready to feel it. If I don't go through this right now, my daughter is going to have to go through this. And I know how bad this hurts. I'll be damned if she has to feel this kind of pain. You know, she'll have her own pain. But if I can take this baggage away and the baggage from all the generations before me, I would do anything to make sure that happens. And that's what keeps me in therapy and keeps me working on myself and keeps me being self-aware. Fear and courage are inextricable. Emotional courage requires us to do the very frightening thing of feeling our pain. Usually this does not feel triumphant or victorious. It feels like grief. But this is the process that heals. Imagine standing in front of a tunnel. It's long and dark. You might feel dread about what you're going to find in there. A big part of you might look at that tunnel and think, can I avoid this? We've all heard that cliche about the light at the end of the tunnel. But the light at the beginning of the tunnel matters just as much. That's why we go in. That light is our clarity about what's important and what's at stake if we don't go in. Daring to feel our pain transforms that pain, not only for ourselves, but for the people that we love and the generations that come after us. Because as psychologist Alice Miller said, what we do not grieve we repeat. I think that daring to sit with and bear our own pain is the most courageous thing that humans can do. So much of living with any mental illness is about living with fear, Whether that's the fear of never feeling better, the fear of recurrence, the fear of not being able to manage, or the fear of being found out. Our culture does not make any of this easier. 
Law professor Ellen Sachs lives with schizophrenia. Her journey has required her to become an expert in facing her own fear. I went to Yale Law School and had a major public breakdown on the roof of the law school and was hospitalized for five months. Uh, Very traumatic experience. I was restrained mechanically for long periods of time. I was given a grave prognosis, which means I was expected to be unable to live independently, let alone to work. Living with psychosis is especially challenging because it makes you doubt your own mind and second-guess all of your ideas and decisions. Ellen's doctors urged her to drop out of law school, but Ellen refused to lose faith in herself. It was predicted that I would never be able to finish my degree, but I disagreed, and I did. And it was extremely difficult to accept that I had a mental illness. It's very stigmatized. It's very painful. You don't want to feel like you're damaged in that way because it goes to the core of who you are as a person. So I struggled for a long time to get off medication. One of my analysts put his foot down and said, you know, you really got to just try staying on the medication. And, you know, lo and behold, my life was just so much better. I had always had a fantasy that everybody else had the same crazy, scary, violent thoughts I did. They were just better at managing them and not showing them to the world. And when I got on the medication and my mind cleared, I thought, huh, you know, maybe other people don't think the way I used to think. And the funny thing is, the more that I accepted that I had a mental illness, the less it kind of defined me. Accepting it made it much less front and center. I used to say about the medication, I don't want to use a crutch. And what I now say is, if my foot were broken, I'd use a crutch. Well, my neurotransmitters are broken. Why wouldn't I try to give them a crutch as much as I would a broken foot. Schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder. A lot of people think it's multiple personalities, but it's not. And it involves things like delusions, hallucinations, and disorganization. So I've had delusions like thinking that 100,000 people have been killed by my thoughts. I've had hallucinations seeing you know, a foot-long diameter spider crawling up my wall. For me, a psychosis is like a waking nightmare where you have all the weird, bizarre things happening and impossible things happening and the utter, utter terror. But with a nightmare, you sit bolt upright in bed, open your eyes, and it goes away. And you can't make a psychotic episode go away just by opening your eyes. Psychosis can be frightening to the person who experiences it, requiring enormous courage to keep functioning. But it's also bizarre and frightening to others in a way that makes it easy for people to stigmatize. The word stigma comes from the ancient Greek practice of burning a brand into the skin of a criminal, a mark of disgrace meant to permanently discredit and dehumanize. I was very traumatized by being mechanically restrained for long periods of time, and I wrote my law school note, which is a student article on that topic, and I went to speak to one of my professors and talked about how degrading and painful it must be to be in restraints. And he said, Ellen, you don't understand. These people are psychotic. They're different from you and me. They don't experience this the way we would. And I thought, well, that's not true. I did experience it as other people would as well. The most frightening example of stigma, and it's fairly common, is when medical symptoms are mistaken for psychiatric symptoms. Ellen began having terrible headaches, and then she started vomiting. Some friends drove her to the ER and a predictable disaster occurred, which they found my medical record saying I had been a psychiatric patient and they decided I was having an episode, even though my friends were jumping up and down and waving their arms and saying this is not how she gets. So they sent me home. Eventually, my internist sent me back. It turned out I was having a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a kind of stroke that kills about 50% of its victims. Ellen decided to speak out about her experiences. In 2007, she published her autobiography, The Center Cannot Hold. People warned me that I shouldn't do it or do it under a pseudonym, and I thought, you know, that just sends the wrong message that this is so awful, awful that you can't say it out loud. But, you know, I was fearful of stigma. In fact, I've gotten just an outpouring of kindness and support and love and respect.
Being so public about living with schizophrenia required Ellen to overcome her shame about feeling defective and to dare to confront the stigma from others. Our fear of talking about mental health is often rooted in shame and stigma. In this country, many of us are told from an early age that common things like anxiety or depression are signs of weakness or failure, cause for embarrassment and shame. Psychologist Judith Jordan describes shame as the longing for connection while simultaneously feeling unworthy of that connection. Shame makes us want to hide something about ourselves because we're afraid of being seen as weak, a failure, bad, or unlovable. It takes real courage to come out of hiding and acknowledge having a mental illness. But every time we do, we make it safer for everyone else who struggles. Coming up after the break, we'll explore how destructive elements of American culture like stigma, racism, and toxic masculinity impact our mental health. We'll also hear from Brene Brown about how embracing our vulnerability is in itself courageous. For more resources on accessing your courage, I invite you to check out our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio. Today, we're exploring the relationship between mental illness and courage. In this last part of the show, we'll be looking at how destructive elements of American culture interfere with mental health. Research professor Brene Brown teaches that acknowledging vulnerability is the heart of courage. We think of the term vulnerability as synonymous with weakness. It's absolutely not. I mean, even dictionary definition, it's not. You know, weakness is the inability to fend off attack. And vulnerability is defined as the knowledge of knowing where one can be attacked. If you think about it that way, strength absolutely requires vulnerability. We cannot ignore these really universal emotions and experiences that we have of sadness, of grief, of shame, disappointment. And what is the consequence, would you say, for people when they do try to ignore it? Because I think the majority of people in our culture supports it, do try to ignore that. And I think that explains why we are the most in-debt, medicated, and addicted adult cohort in U.S. history. We're a nation of numbers. We just cannot hold space. For discomfort. Vulnerability is the core of shame, and vulnerability is the core of fear, and maybe even anxiety. But it's also the birthplace of hope, of compassion, of love, of belonging, of joy. And so I think when we shut ourselves off from vulnerability to protect ourselves, from feeling shame or fear. We also shut down the possibility for joy and for inspiration and for creativity and love and things that we really need. Vulnerability is basically turning over some control. It's saying, I'm going to love you without any guarantees of being loved back. I'm going to put my art out in the world without any guarantees that it will be appreciated or understood. I'm going to make the decision with my business without any guarantee of financial success. I'm going to make myself vulnerable. And vulnerability is that space where we do not know what's happening. To be able to live in that space where I know there are no guarantees, but I'm going to love you fiercely anyway, in itself is an act of vulnerability, I think.
Jeff Dill is a retired fire captain from outside of Chicago. He's also a licensed counselor. He and his wife Karen co-founded the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance to help other firefighters learn to befriend their own vulnerability. There are things that you can't even imagine happen in the fire service until you get in there. There's a term, post-traumatic stress injury, where the brain is injured due to continuous responding to horrific calls. And believe me, they're horrific. We don't want to show any weakness. We put this uniform on. This is how we're supposed to act. Brave, strong, courageous, give help, don't ask for help. I handle all issues on my own. Firefighters are at a high risk for suicide. In fact, first responders in this country, like firefighters, paramedics, and EMTs, are all more likely to die from suicide than in the line of duty. It's not only because of PTSD. It's also because of the dangerous power of culturally enforced silence. I've had many, and I mean many, conversations with firefighters who have called us looking for help that are in tears. And I'll ask them, well, what's your structure like at home? What's your support? Oh, I can't talk to my loved one. They'll think I'm weak. Our whole job is predicated on responding to those who call for help. So where did it go wrong that we couldn't ask for help for ourselves? After talking with Jeff, I wondered if it might take even more courage for a firefighter to open up and ask for help than it does to walk into a burning building. What did you learn in your training about how to cope with fear when it comes up? Oh, we didn't talk about that. You're trained on how to understand fire, how to enter a room, how to do a search. It's about training not only physically, but training your mind. There's a a phrase that many of us know in that fire service, and that's, you know, suck it up, buttercup. It makes sense that the only way to get yourself to walk into a burning building is to shut out even your awareness of fear. But when it becomes shameful to acknowledge fear, there is a price because that buried fear expresses itself in other ways. At times, anger masks fear. I can tell you without a doubt that anger is my biggest issue. We went on a minor accident, very minor. I was the battalion chief on the call. It was a wet day. A mother had her two boys in the back seat. They slid on the pavement. As she was braking, she slid into the back of a truck and and bumped it. The kids bounced off the back of the front seat. There was no injuries, but she wanted to check them out. Not two weeks later, I'm with my daughters driving. They're about 13 and 15, I believe, at the time. They're in the back seat. One takes her seatbelt off to reach for something on the ground. And what do you think my reaction was? It was pure anger. It was, are you kidding me? If I hit the brakes, you're flying like a missile through this windshield. I know I didn't have this anger issue getting into the fire service many years ago. I realize it now, and my wife and I, we talk about it. Before, it was deny, deny, deny. Now it's I acknowledge, I acknowledge, I acknowledge. The number one known reason why that fire and EMS take their lives is marital and family relationships. That scares me. For me, resiliency starts with talk, talk, talk. And if we can, instead of bottling these emotions that we struggle with, start talking to our brothers and sisters, start talking to our loved ones, start talking to counselors and chaplains. And we're doing some great things in the fire service, in the EMS world, with things called peer support teams, training firefighters to learn how to listen and then finding resources for their brothers and sisters. One of the bravest and most courageous things that we can do is to allow others into our lives to help us. Jeff and his wife, Karen, travel around North America leading workshops for firefighters about mental health and learning to ask for help. Daring to acknowledge vulnerability can be life-saving. We're starting to see more and more senior brothers and sisters in the fire and EMS world stand up and say, if this can happen to me, guess what, Junior? This can happen to you as well. And so they're talking, they're sharing their stories. And that is also powerful, that when you see a burned body, 
when you carry a dead child. These things will affect you. Do not think you can go alone. I will help find someone for you to talk to. And these are the positives that we're starting to see in the fire world. Working to change the toxic culture of a profession is tremendously challenging. But working to change the culture of a whole country that is steeped in racism, discrimination, and structural violence is a job that requires courage from all of us. Racism has a detrimental impact on the mental health of so many people of color. One in four African Americans experiences an anxiety or panic disorder. But people of color seek mental health treatment far less often than white people. Some of the barriers are structural, like lack of access, cost, and insurance. And some of the barriers have to do with the way that psychiatry has treated patients of color in the past on segregated hospital wards with less actual treatment, and still today with more pathologizing diagnoses. Stigma, too, plays a powerful role. One of the things that I think impacts the way that we stigmatize mental illness is related to mistrust rooted in historical ways that systems of healthcare and mental health care in particular have mistreated Black Americans. Dr. Tahira Abdullah is a psychology professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, where she also directs the Black Mental Health Advocacy and Research Lab. When I was growing up, mental health was absolutely not something that we discussed in our family. My family actually has a history of mental illness. It's something that would have been helpful to know. Tahira's mother eventually revealed that her father, Tahira's grandfather, suffered from schizoaffective disorder, a combination of mood swings and schizophrenia. I knew that he had passed away, but nobody really shared about it. It was this kind of unspoken thing. To find out that he died by suicide, I was just really surprised that we had gone for so long without talking about it. My mom really thinks that the racism that he experienced really took a toll on him and impacted the way that he coped. When Tahira was introduced to psychology in college, she was excited to enter a field that would allow her to work for change in her family and her community. There is a significant impact of experiencing racism on depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and on general psychiatric symptoms. Racism often can also be internalized. The impact of internalizing, of actually believing, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, all of the negative things that society says about you can really have a detrimental impact on mental health. I think one of the ways that I see it most starkly is through the things that I sometimes think that I can't do things that I don't envision for myself or for my future, I think are steeped in what has been put forward as a possibility for Black women and what has not been put forward as a possibility for Black women. It takes a lot to be able to overcome that self-doubt that is saying, this isn't for you or you don't belong here. One of the things that my work has recently focused on has been the importance of resisting racism. Resistance can look like resisting the internalization of racism. It could look like resisting racism on a systemic level, too, as a way to not only cope with it, but also to provide a way of working to destroy it. If you have to summon up your courage, what have you learned about what supports you when you need to do that? Thinking about future generations by thinking about my students who I want a better world for. As I walk through life, it's so easy for me to feel hopeless or for me to feel like stuff is never going to change. And when I hear my students talking about the changes that they want to make, I'm encouraged by their hope and by their passion.
Dior Vargas is one such young person working to create a better future for women of color with mental illnesses. My name is Dior Vargas, and I'm 32 years old. I'm a Latina feminist mental health activist. Dior grew up in a home with domestic violence, and for many years she suffered with PTSD and depression. I felt very silenced as a child because there were so many things that were happening in my household that I couldn't tell anyone about because there was a lot of shame, but also because of fear of what might happen. So I was experiencing a lot of bullying in school. We were on welfare, and so there were times when we would have ice for dinner. I was afraid of being taken away from my mother. I was afraid that my uncle would do something violent. Every aspect of my life, I was terribly afraid. I just felt like there was no place where I felt safe. Childhood trauma is a huge risk factor for mental illness. It leaves a child with the feeling of being worthless. When Dior was just 11 years old, she took an overdose of pills for the first time. And I don't even know how I figured out how to even try to end my life, but I just did. And then I'd go to sleep and I'd wake up in the morning and nothing would happen. But that didn't stop me from continuing to do it to see if maybe one time it would actually go through. But it sounds like nobody knew. Nobody realized how urgent the situation was. Yeah, I was by myself. Every time I did it, I didn't explain that to anyone. So I had tried for many years, and no one in my household knew. Dior was 18 when she finally got help. She was back home in New York for the summer after her first year at college. But she wasn't getting along with her mom or her sister. I just thought, well, there's nowhere where I feel safe. There's nowhere where I feel happy. Why not just do what I've always done and go ahead and end it all? So I did my usual method, and then by the time I woke up, it was around dinner time, and my sister was, like, nudging me, like, hey, you know, time to wake up. And I was completely out of it. And so she just squinted and looked at me and just said, did you do something? I just sort of nodded my head. And so then she told my mother, and my mother was so angry. And she, she smacked me in the face and said, how could you do this to me? They took me to the emergency room. I was moved to a hospital bed where they had a nurse sit by my bed 24-7. There weren't locks on the door. So I felt very much like I was being punished and that I was a prisoner. After like one or two days, I was moved to the psychiatric ward. Very much like a performance, I you know, participated in groups and different activities and would go into the living room, but I just felt like I was dead inside. I just remember sitting in the living room one day, back when the Oprah show was still on, and she was visiting a concentration camp and walking the grounds. My roommate was there and she stood and pointed at the screen and said, I was there. I've told this story so many times, and I still cry every time I tell it. I felt so selfish. I felt so dumb, and I, it was so much shame I had felt because who was I to try to end my life? The fact that I was sharing a room with a Holocaust survivor, I felt... I felt like a waste, and it's just really eye-opening for me because I just felt like I can't continue doing this anymore, and I have to value my life more. And I think it stopped being a performance and started being just me making an actual effort to be better. It's funny because when I finally was able to leave, I felt sad because that was the first time that I had been in a space where I felt like I belonged. For so many kids who've grown up with trauma, it takes a huge act of courage to decide to value your life. This moment of clarity helped Dior to make a decision that would change her life, that her own needs are legitimate and worthy of attention and care. After that, I just really decided to take care of myself. I mean, it wasn't like a light switch, but that was the last time that I attempted. So it's been about 14 years, and I just feel like that was when I, I started really being an advocate for myself and slowly being an advocate for others. Encouraging others can help build your own courage. In the years since that moment of clarity in the hospital, 
Dior has managed a crisis helpline, led support groups, and become an accomplished public speaker. She also started a photo project called The Color of My Mind, which highlights the experiences of people of color with mental illness. I want communities of color to just feel like their lives matter. I just didn't want anyone else to go through what I had gone through. And if there was some way that I could do that, then that's what I needed to do. Feeling powerful in in what I do is something that I'm very grateful for. To know that you're helping others really makes you feel like you have a purpose. In 2015, Dior received an award for her advocacy. She was named one of President Obama's Champions for Change. It was just something that I was so happy about. And it was just another way for me to tell my mom, like, I know I was a pain in the butt, but, (laughs) like, I'm taking you to the White House. Like, come on. (laughs) But also just a way for me to, to show her, like, your hard work really really did something and you know I just want to kind of honor you in this way and and have you be part of this. To struggle with mental health requires so much courage. The courage to face that there is something wrong and to ask for help. The courage to keep going when you feel terrible and to make plans despite the fear of recurrence. The courage to accept and even befriend difficult parts of yourself that might never go away. The courage to go into your own pain in order to heal. The courage to believe in yourself and care for yourself, even when others don't. And of course, the courage to be open about living with mental illness, despite judgment, stigma, shame, and discrimination. Accepting our vulnerability and sharing it with others is so challenging, but it can deeply support our mental health. If you are struggling to access your own courage, think about what you love and let it motivate you. Seek clarity about what you really value and what's at stake. Clarity will help you go into that dark tunnel, carrying a light, so that we all feel less alone. Visit us at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to my full interview with Brene Brown and get other resources and tips about how to access your courage. You can also subscribe to stay connected to us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Safe Space Radio. Many thanks to our senior producer, Mary Quintus, program director and editor, Dana Glass, our editorial advisor, Jim Russell, our production advisors from two organizations in the Bronx, Dream Yard, an arts and social justice program, and Here to Here, an equity and career pathways program. Thanks, too, to our creative advisory committee here in Portland, Maine. Leva Pierce, our summer intern, and to all our donors who made this show possible. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward. Thanks for listening.